Hi, I'm Bernard Leung and you may know me as the executive who chats with industry leaders, venture capitalists and startup founders. And in my spare time, I want to review how the year 2018 has gone for Southeast Asia. You're listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business, technology and media in Asia. And today I have Anup Bonzum again, the co-founder of Map of the Money, who did an excellent year-end review last year. Welcome Anup and it's great to have you back again to close the year of 2018. Hi Bernard, thanks for having me today. Yes, I I know you are the co-founder of Map of the Money and entrepreneur in residence for INSEAD Business School, which is where we are both at now, face-to-face. Since our last conversation, what have you been up to? Uh, since last year, a lot of things have happened. On the Map of the Money front, we have built a new update where we started to bring more filters, to bring more details for entrepreneurs to know who are the active investors in the region and from which kind of vehicle they're investing at which stage. And we're currently working on a massive update for early next year. I want to get you here today to talk about the state of Southeast Asia in 2018. I think before this, both of us have actually spent some time on Google Docs working through like 20 different events and then we collapse it down to about six to seven of them. And I think the way we're going to go is I'm going to use a category for each event and then we'll talk about some of the events that happened and then we'll get your thoughts as well. So the first event we call it Movers and Shakers. And when we think of Movers and Shakers, we'll be thinking about Grab, C Group, Razor, maybe now Carousel will be joining soon and many other companies. So the first one is Grab's acquisition of Uber Southeast Asia. Uber owns, I think, 27.5% of Grab and then there is additional rounds for Grab, I think a billion dollar from SoftBank, Toyota and everyone else. That's the first big event. And then the second event that is a bit subtle and everybody is now doing it is this whole thing copying from China to Southeast Asia. I call it the super app trend. You're now hearing Grab is doing a super app. You're hearing Gojek, who also raised a lot of money, also having a super trend. Yes, I forgot. They are also a mover and shakers too. So I want to start by asking you, what do you think about what's happening with Grab and Gojek with their competition in Southeast Asia. What is very interesting on Grab is, as you mentioned, now they have Uber on the, on the cap table at like 27.5% of the time than when then that happened last this year. But they also got DD before. You get DD also as an investor of Grab because they have like some investment going on before. On the other side, you get Gojek who don't have any of right-a-link company on this cap table, but get also massive giant like Google and Tencent on a more like agnostic one. But then they've also built something very strong on the e-commerce since GD.com, Metron Diaping and Rakuten are on the cap table of Gojek. So Gojek is going through that way, also having some financial investors like insurance or bank like DBS or Allianz. So this is, is where we see like DBS in terms of who are the investors. But when you look at Grab, on top of the one we mentioned, there's a lot of cars company on the cap table. Car or motorbike, you get Yamaha, Kia, Hyundai, Honda, and and then you also get Toyota. And Toyota is the one who put the biggest amount of money is above a billion into Grab. And now we're seeing Grab having more and more Toyota cars too. So it's quite interesting to see what the weight that Toyota is having into Grab strategy potentially as of today and for the future. But Grab also have done a lot of partnership on the financial side. So when you look, they got MasterCard, UOB, PayPal, CT. Crisicon Bank in Thailand, and as well also as more like real estate players like Lipo or Capital Land. So what is very interesting is like both of them is on top of raising a lot of money, also building a lot of partnership with a lot of those players across the region. As you mentioned, like Gojek as the one who started to be a super app. So Gojek have been very deep in terms of services they were offering, but only in Indonesia at the beginning of this year. Whereas Grab was only offering transportation, but across a multitude of countries in Southeast Asia. Then what happened this year, the difference is 
in July during Rise grabbed make the announcement of the super app and at the same time they also started themselves to invest a little bit more into startup like Happy Fresh, Faith, etc. where they're building all those services for the super app. Whereas Gojek, instead of building a super app because they already have it, they decided to expand across Southeast Asia. So basically you have two different strategies. One were being very deep in the region, one of being very deep into services which is Gojek. And then both of them try to fight on those two dimensions now. So I guess we will see potentially in like in a few years, because I think it will take more than a year, who may have like the best strategy and the best execution for the region. But what is very important is both of them also looking to invest into startups. I've made an announcement of funds to invest into startups. They've done a lot of partnership and they're doing that on both sides with the smaller players compared to them and with the bigger player compared to them that, as we mentioned, like people like Microsoft or Booking.com. But do you feel there is actually a proxy war between Alibaba and Tencent? Because the investors of Gojek is Meituan, Tencent Pro- and JD. They're all friends of the Tencent family. Whereas in Grab is SoftBank, Alibaba, which they usually co-invest it together as well. I think that it sets up a proxy war. But I want to ask you this. Next year, we're going to have the Lyft and Uber IPO. Yes. Do you foresee Grab or Gojek will attempt to go IPO immediately after that because there will be a valuation in the market? I think the Uber and Lyft, what they will bring is they will tell you a little bit more about liquidity of those companies, but then it's a very different scale. Like when you go to Uber, is something that currently valued at more than 70 billion, where Grab is slightly more than a decacorn, slightly more than 10 billion as of today. So we're doing a very different kind of scale. But Lyft will be more on the range potentially of what could be a grab or Gojek the day they may go for IPO. So this may give a little bit more information for them. Then the thing is, Grab have raised way more money than Gojek as of today. And they may use that also as a buffer. If the IPO of those two big players doesn't go as well, they may be able to wait. Where Gojek, depending on how much they, they will need to raise to get a buffer. So then it will be a little bit different. I guess Grab have a little bit of money to wait if those IPO doesn't look very good. Where Gojek will be more need to choose between need to be break even but could be very challenging or need to raise a lot of money quickly. But then with a signal of the two IPO and one very well will be very difficult. So I guess Grab could be in a slightly better position because they have more money on the balance sheet today than Gojek. But here's the question I have been asking everyone and everybody's avoiding the subject. And the question is the following. Indonesia is the largest market for the whole of Southeast Asia. Uh-huh. It probably holds at least three quarters of the population in terms of effective market size. I mean, depending on what numbers you want to use. Doesn't Gojek having the largest market have economies of scale versus Grab, which only have the rest of the countries without Indonesia? It's similar to the argument of why a lot of these US investors will always love to go to China because there's one billion population. You go to India, it's another one billion population. Do you see that kind of phenomenon happening for Indonesia such that Gojek will have enough skill to take on Grab? What is very interesting is, I mean, what you mentioned is challenging to know in terms of exact market share in terms of consumer. But for sure, it's, it's roughly 50% of the total population of the whole region. So this is already like a large part. And I think something that people miss to describe when they talk about Indonesia is not only the biggest country in South Asia, it's the fourth biggest country in the world. So you only get like China, India, and the US above. Then when you think about all the big companies we mentioned that have invested in Grab and Gojek, all of them are publicly listed. I mean, most of them anyway. And a lot of them are coming from China where they need to get a second breath for the growth. So they need to go through Southeast Asia and Indonesia is such a key and strategic thing that you need to have. So for sure, Gojek get an advantage to be very strong there and get doing very well. But at the end of the day, it will be about execution. Will be Nanostri being the first one in the market, will be the one who will be really able to doing very well. And I've been surprised. Some people say that Grab have a very good point to collect people at the airports and they have like turning point at the airport in Indonesia and they're doing that very well and it's not their own market. So then you can also think about 
Well, the Indonesian government will be more friendly with one of the two players. It's also a question you can ask in the region, right? But I agree with you that potentially Gojek get a maybe slightly advantage because of Indonesia, but then you get grabbed with raising way more money. And then at the end of the day, I don't think so. The advantage of Indonesia or raising more money is what will make any of them win. I think at the end will be about execution. So the one who will be really able to execute fast in the right way will be the one who will win. I think it's very difficult to decide or to get a sense today about who will be the winner. For a lot of people, will be mostly flipping a coin because because even if you get who will be the winner, getting the reason why they will win today, that is very difficult. And I think that the market actually wants to have two players. Just imagine the point where Uber sold its Southeast Asia assets to Grab. Immediately, there were all the competition commissions from Philippines, Malaysia, and Singapore yeah. taking on Grab immediately. So they do need each other around because if they try to consolidate themselves, it's going to go into another round of antitrust as well. I guess the government is kind of cautious because of the population not very happy when some of those players leave. They also have built like some wrong perception. So best Basically, before people were thinking Grab was cheap because there were a lot of vouchers, a lot of discount. But the Grab should may have told you like what is the real price and then they give you a discount. People get used to the discount and think this is a normal price. And then they expect when the competition leave that they keep that very aggressive pricing. So I think it was a lot about expectation and people expect those players to always keep a low price when they were just going to be very aggressive to market share. And then the coincidence of increase of price is one of the two player leave. But if you look at the scale, when you look at the size of the fine that Grab got in Singapore is around 4.5 million USD and Uber got the same. It's a lot of money, but when you have raised like 7 billion we're talking about the very tiny tiny amount of money at the end so yes the regulation regulation should play the role but at the end you still also get the, the taxi if you want to use in some of those countries you can of course get the bus and few of them a subway so it's always like few other alternatives and then even if vietnam we just get a, a new riding company who just appeared singapore they also tada so like it's good that regulation is looking to enforce those kind of thing but if it's really give a very big empty room someone will come and compete the day that Uber left China, you get people who got massive funding at the ride-dealing company in China to willing to compete against Didi. If it makes sense to get competition, the market may help to bring competition. Then the question would be more for small markets. Like if you're just Singapore, maybe competition would not come there because it's too small. But a country like Indonesia, if you only get one player, you're pretty sure you may get someone else coming entering that market and it could be DD. DD also enter a lot of other new markets. For example, they enter through acquisition Brazil and they're looking at entering Mexico, which is also one of the big one of Uber. So DD can also come in Southeast Asia technically if one of those two disappear. I think if that happens, DD will acquire Grab. I think that's my eventual A lot of hypothesis. money. There's a lot of money there because if you have a valuation above 10 billion, it's still a large part. So then it will be a transfer maybe of equity on both sides and maybe a little bit of cash involved, but it's a lot of money. It may also help DD to defer their IPO. If you think about it, if there's a consolidation event happen, that share so bad, it might actually allow them to have some breathing room to IPO later after Uber. But the one also who is below a lot of them is SoftBank. So this is one of the very well-known SoftBank is below a lot of them. So it could be also SoftBank giving 15 billion to DD and DD with that money go and acquire Grab. So you can get those kind of stories. But we mentioned also Rakuten. Rakuten is also behind a lot of ride-dealing companies. They're also below Lyft and they're also Karim in Middle East. Even if like investors like Kuatsu Management was also investing in, in more than four or five ride-dealing companies across the world. So we always talk about SoftBank, but it's a wide range of at least five to seven investors who have invested in four and more ride-dealing companies worldwide. And I don't count the bike and the scooter and all the new one that we are having now also chasing the mobility market. Just to close the mover and shakers events, there are also two IPO events this year. One is the C Group listing in New York 
and the other one is Razer, which actually listed in Hong Kong. I'm coming to event number two, which is the influence of China tech giants in Southeast Asia. I think for this year, news may be pretty quiet, but we know that is not true because every time I'm in Thailand or Indonesia these days, I've seen a lot of activity from Tencent, but in the esports gaming yep. arena. I want to start off by asking you, what do you think Alibaba, Tencent, and now maybe even JD, Meituan, they are all in the region. What is their influence in the market as you have observed? I think first, something start to disappear for this year, maybe from the late of last year, is before everyone was talking about BAT in Southeast Asia. And I was always asking, what is B doing in the region? What, what Beidou is doing in the region? I've been very little. But Alibaba, Tencent, definitely. And then you got the GD.com and Mitchell also doing things. So Alibaba have been definitely the most visible because when you put $2 billion to buy Lazada, then, then you make a lot of noise, right? And then Lazada bought Rainmart. But then they also have put a lot of money in Singapore Post, and they also have built a lot of things through payments, security. They're also investing in Tokopedia in the region. So Alibaba are definitely very visible. And Alibaba usually may go through the acquisition. Usually when they do investment, they have more of the mindset usually to want to acquire. Tencent, I feel, have more a partnership. They look like sometimes, for example, in Thailand, they, with Ugbi, they did the joint ventures. They do a lot of partnership. So what they will do often in partnership, but when, when you talk about gaming, they did a lot of acquisition and they own a lot of games. And a lot of people will be surprised. A lot of games you play, you feel like it's an independent game and then it's owned by a bigger company and that bigger company is owned or Tencent may have a large stake into that company. So Tencent is definitely huge in the region. Even if you go back to Garena, called C now did the IPO. One of the big things for them is a license of distribution for League of Legends. And this is back to Tencent. So this is also another influence of Tencent in the region. I think Tencent is also one having a biggest drive to be bigger here. Because when you see they have um, regulation challenge in China on the gaming industry. So they can't rely too much in China. And it's a bit the same with Alibaba. All those Chinese companies are over-dependent and making a lot of money from the Chinese market. So they need to go overseas just to diversify. And Southeast Asia is one of the good entry points for them to start to learn about going overseas, do investment, acquisition. But it's not very easy, right? If you just look at Lazada, they acquire them, then they keep the management for a while, then they bring one of the initial co-founders of Alibaba, former executive chairman of Unfinancial, to take the CEO position at Lazada. And then this last nine months, and then now you get one of the former co-founder of Lazada here who is going back getting the CEO position here. So it's not very easy and they are learning on those kind of things. GD and Mitran, especially Mitran is more quiet. GD have done like a few things, but also it's changing because some of them are doing very quiet things that we don't get any press coverage. But they're also working with the old players. So for example, GD did a partnership with Central Group in Thailand. So they are very opportunistic. They also invested in Pomelo, Tiki in Vietnam. So they're doing here and there are a few things. Not that you try to get too much press coverage, but it's what I mentioned with Alibaba. When you start to look at the whole thing, you start to see like logistic, payments, some e-commerce, and then you start to see they are rebuilding the full stack of what they need to build the infrastructure in the region. And they're just doing that piece per piece. They're just doing their shopping and just like preparing all the piece. And then at one point they may assemble all the thing and people are like, oh, wow, dude looks smart. This is a good reflection of how China tech companies operate in Southeast Asia as compared to the U.S. tech companies. The U.S. tech companies will come in, put a press release and tell everybody, I'm here, I'm in town, and then they will spend the next 12 months trying to build something. Whereas the Chinese companies are keeping quiet, starting to put in all the bricks and mortar into the different markets. And then by the time they switch on, you suddenly realize, oops, they're in town. One of the things I really noticed because I've been traveling up to Thailand for quite a bit is that I, I've seen the over-pervasiveness of WeChat Pay. Even the hotel I stay in, which is Hyatt, is actually accepting 
WeChat Pay is, is something that is really pervasive in the Thai market. And I think this is getting pretty interesting. I'm going to switch gears now because we know that the influence of China tech companies will continue to grow. Maybe next year we'll expect a big announcement. I want to talk about the startup ecosystem. There's been a lot of talk about seed funds are dying, Series A funds are dying because most of the venture capitalists who raise their second third funds are all going upstream. And I think you brought up an interesting proposition. I think one observation you made is that there's the return of the venture builder because of entrepreneur first in 2016 and mm-hmm. Antler in 2017. I got Magnus Grimson, the CEO of Antler, on my show previously and also Alex Compton from Entrepreneur First. They both on my show. So I want to get your thoughts on the seed stage. Where do you think the startup ecosystem across Southeast Asia is growing? I know a lot of activity centers in Singapore, but seriously, Singapore is mm. not the center of attention. Even for me, I think the region is actually far more interesting than, than Singapore. Yeah, definitely. I, I think when you look at the region is the part to get most visibility would be always Singapore and Indonesia. But then two countries that don't get too much coverage would be Malaysia and Thailand, and then followed by Vietnam, and then Philippines is still a bit challenging for them to build their ecosystem as of today. As you mentioned, like Entrepreneur First and Antler on the venture builder side, but really about bringing people who want to be entrepreneur and during their program, those people start to decide what they want to build with who they want to build and then they build a team. And basically when they go to Demo Day, it's mostly MVP, a little bit of traction and POC. So it's very early, it's way before an, an accelerator. So you get those people who start to emerge now. And it's interesting because what we saw before was more like Rocket Internet and building company like Lazada and Zalora. And this was 2012. So between those two, we didn't have much things that kind of very venture builder in a way. But also what is happening now is also very smaller venture builder. So EF and Antler are doing that at size. The, the batch will be 100 founders at the beginning, and then they will graduate like a dozen or two dozen of startups. So each of them may have like two or three of this entrepreneur, and a part of them may quit in, in the journey. But you also start to get a lot of, sometimes it's called like venture studio or, or venture builder, who are looking to build like two, three companies per year in Southeast Asia. And some of them are looking at very specific vertical, like only fintech, like for example, Future Labs is looking mostly at fintech. So you start to get also a little bit more of those people coming back. And I guess for me is either you do volume like EF and Antler or either you do only two three per years but you do very niche and something where people were helping them really know what they are doing so it would be like either small or big and, and this is quite interesting in the region then you also get DTAC with a bag by Telenor the Nordic telecom company we also have scaled the program across the region so they have program in in Malaysia they have program even if um, outside of Southeast Asia so you start also to have a lot of implication there and, and we go a little bit further in the value chain like on the accelerator side it's still a lot of corporate run programs here and very few independent programs who manage to sustain. I look at that a little bit deeper. You will see very few programs who manage to do more than two batch. Like already doing the third batch is almost kind of a way to survive. Like very few have managed to do more than two and three years. And a lot of them have been launched just this year. I'll hold the corporate conversation yeah. till later. I think in the way we were on the Google Docs looking at the venture capital ecosystem, we can divide the trends into three parts. The first part, which is the seed and series ABCs who were in the 2011-2012 period are now raising their third fund. For example, Golden Gate Ventures, Jungle Ventures. And then there is the series BVCs that are raising their second fund, which is Quagro and B Capital. B Capital, everybody knows, is owned by Eduardo Severin, one of the co-founders of Facebook. So the question, do you see this moving upstream will continue to go upstream, whereas the rest of the market is actually going to have problems in those two seed stage and series A stage where most of the risk are actually being taken? Well, I think you will get both. The thing is, when we describe fund like Golden Gate or Jungle raising the third fund, 
It depends how you count also because the first fund they raised was very small, which happened in a lot of early stage ecosystem. People may consider it's only the second fund or the third one. But what is sure is like those third fund is like a three digit million. So it starts to be like a bigger size of fund, more management fees, possibility to build really teams to support even if more the startup they have in their portfolio. Quagro is definitely raising the second fund. I think they announced a target at 100 million, did the first close at 60 million. B Capital, there were no announcements, but think they've raised the, the first fund already a while ago. We can guess they're already on the road to look at raise the second one. This is interesting to start to see those people raising the bigger fund. So of course, a lot of venture capital firm will be driven to raise a bigger fund because bigger fund means bigger management fees. But sometimes when you get the need of helping to build the early stage ecosystem, you will see that some of those funds will sometimes go back to smaller check or set up a smaller fund. So for example, Jungle start to do Seed Plus and Seed Plus is a 20 million funds and looking at the seed stage. If you look at Golden Gates, so maybe it's just one fact, but recently they just invested in a startup for 600K with Antler. So 600K round shouldn't be the size of the run you do as a series they found. So it's either they found their like amazing entrepreneur, they really want to back them early or maybe Golden Gate can sometimes maybe if there is a risk of not enough series A deal, they can go back to the early stage roots and do some seed deals. So I guess the advantage is a lot of those funds have done seed before, the one who graduate to do Series A. So if at one point they need to do once in a while a seed deal, they can do it, they have that knowledge. Then it depends if the LPs agree with that or not. Or they can, if they want spin off an early stage fund and raise a smaller fund like Jungle did to invest at the early stage. So I'm not like too scared about those kind of things. So let's say the venture capital trends a little bit out of the region, and then we also talk about family funds mm-hmm. and as well. Where do you see, for example, countries like Thailand would mm-hmm. have their own funds, or even like say family, but the Liverpool group is definitely family mm-hmm. fund yep. as well. And also, where do you see these funds within each of the Southeast Asia country coming up now? It seems that there's a lot of funds being announced this year. I remember yes. RHL, yes. which is a family fund run by owned by four families that they join up and their kids form a fund. So everybody can create a fund these days in Southeast Asia, which is quite fun because we have a lot of money getting around but not enough startup founders. I think we got a lot of announcements around like Singapore based funds so then anyway they will look at the region Thailand some new funds not necessarily a new venture arm but like a new fund in Indonesia and as well in Vietnam I think the thing where we didn't hear anything is Philippines even if I'm wrong I don't think so there were any major announcements in Philippines even if you get a large market so so this is an interesting fact too Thailand is very interesting because a lot of interesting things happen in Thailand like for example Two corporate I've studied a long time ago, like Telenor and Amadeus, their first program worldwide to engage with startups as an accelerator or Amadeus Next was a slightly different than accelerator from Thailand, where those companies are from Europe. So why do they start those kind of things in Thailand? So this is a very interesting fact. But then at the same time, you got a bank like Siam Commercial Bank who did digital ventures and digital ventures are directly in a lot of startups, but there's also LPs in a lot of funds, including several of them in Southeast Asia. And then you also get Siri Ventures with also Siam Commercial Bank behind and a real estate company from Thailand also behind. And what is interesting, on those two funds where Siam Commercial Bank is behind is both of them are being LPs in some funds. So Siri from Nepal invested in uh, FIFU World Ventures, which is one of the leading real estate venture firm based in the US. So both of them look at deals worldwide, top deals worldwide, top deals in Southeast Asia, and they're also LPs in some of the leading funds worldwide and Southeast Asia. So it's very interesting to see funds coming from a corporate company like Siam Commercial Bank looking at things worldwide and not like only about Southeast Asia or what happened in China, only what happened in the U.S., they try to look at globally. So this is very interesting to see that global mindset coming out of Thailand. On the family side, you mentioned 
RHL or Lipo. Lipo have done a shift this year. They moved from their Ventura, was set up as a 150 million fund to look more at seed deals, which was a bit surprising when you know that I have a pretty good track record in terms of startups that have invested through Ventura. The portfolio is pretty interesting. They decided to move on on, a, on the smaller check size and go to early stage investments. Orum is also an interesting one in uh, in Singapore. So this comes from a real estate company, Family. And they, they have one of the seed investors in Mlet, for example, where Sequoia just invested uh, more money this year. I think it was around 6, 6.5 million round. So it's a pretty good track record for them. They've done few investments and including one with a big follow-on from Sequoia. So Family can also definitely set up funds and perform well. It's actually the real crazy rich Asians who are doing the investments now into the VC world. How about verticals? Do you see a lot more vertical-driven funds as well? Like, so, I mean, I see yeah. a lot of blockchain companies investment companies happening yeah blockchain or cloud or b2b I, I, I would don't okay so i will i'll put twofold there i think or even if three we have the first we have the generalist investors like a sequoia 500 all those guys or jungle golden gate were mostly generalists and sometimes it's interesting because some of them are doing so much in volume that they may do more fintech deals some of them that some fintech specialized funds so then you can always decide like who know more so about fintech it, it, it could be you can you can argue there at the end but so these are generalists <clears throat> and then at the extreme of that you get the specialist. So then what we saw emerging is like few funds. So for example, Start Today is based on the structure of Cento and they're looking at fashion. So this is a bit more focused. You look at Linux, who is also based on the Golden Gates, and they look at blockchain and cryptocurrency. And then some of them, as I mentioned now, are based on the other funds. But then you get some of them who are built from without any structure to support them. So for example, one who have been announced just with Slush recently in the Nordic was Play Ventures, and they're looking only at gaming. So this is very interesting because at the same time, you also get Google, who just did this first batch of gaming startup coming through Singapore. So you start to get a little bit more gaming in the region. You got Gary now did the IPO. You got big company like Ubisoft year two. So maybe we'll start to see a little bit more gaming things happening in the region. We got Flappy Bird at one point. So we'll see if South Asia can build that ecosystem. And then is a question for any of those verticalization or specialization. Is it enough deals in the region? So it's also why some of those funds like Play Ventures are definitely looking above Southeast Asia and they will have some of their partner based outside of Southeast Asia. To deploy that fund. So those are like some of the verticalization we're seeing. Even if in a food, in fact, you get like two funds who kind of went together. It was Visvarest and New Protein who set up a fund together now. The tribe was looking mostly or three ventures looking at fintech. So we're starting to see that kind of emergence. What I say the third one, I think for me, B2B or blockchain or cloud is not really a, a specialization. It's still very large. So it's kind of between the journalist and specialist that we'll just put that between. There is something about venture capital in Southeast Asia in this decade, the current decade that we're living in versus the decade before. We are starting to see venture capital funds raising the mm-hmm. second and third round, and then you start to have different verticals coming out. I think one interesting thing that I think we haven't really seen, which I think is already happening, is LPs. So we're starting to have LPs too. Do you see a lot of LPs actually are mainly family funds or sovereign yeah, funds yeah. like Thomasic and GIC? or MathCap from Malaysia. Uh-huh. Do you see that more or even particular things like venture debt where banks that can actually issue debt for similar uh-huh. to what Silicon Valley Bank is like in Silicon Valley, for True. example? So Silicon Valley Bank is a good example because also LPs in found, they also do venture debt for, for startups. What we described before about saying there is verticalization of funds plus second or third funds Plus, venture debt, this just shows that the maturity of the ecosystem, because venture debt, usually you may do that at Series A or more often even if at Series B. So you need to get a really pretty mature ecosystem before you get venture debt. Before you get specialization, you need to get a large volume of startup to have enough for VC to justify that it will have enough deal flow just in a very specific vertical. And to be able to raise your second or third fund, 
you, you need to be able to have done well with the previous one. So this definitely showed like more development in the ecosystem. On the LP side, I've tracked as of today like a little bit more than 60 unique LPs who have invested in Southeast Asia venture-based funds. This is very difficult to really be able to get a sense about what is the nature of the LP structure of the fund here because the way I tracked is mostly on the public one. So the one will be public, of course, a math cap will be public, a tema sec will be public. Public listed company like Cisco, Never will also disclose a lot of their, or even if it's GS shop, they have invested in several funds in the region. So you get basically the government who are very visible and the public listed company who are very visible. IFC also have done several and also disclose the one they have done, including like Jungle Ventures, for example, or in all these kind of where you have public records, the investment funds that they actually put in is very insignificant as compared to their overall holdings. I mean, if you're thinking of a, a big fund like, say, Tamasic, which rumored by probably like Forbes or Bloomberg, they say there's something like about 200 billion fund, but when they invest in startups, it's probably less than 100 million. Uh, they even might put into some of their subsidiaries like Vertex Ventures. They're also LPs to somebody like LPs to, for example, Golden Gate as well. So you find that that particular investment that they put in is actually very insignificant as compared. So, but can you actually infer a lot of that from that? So for a lot of those players, when they will do like on the corporate, when they will do the investment, anyway, is, is more strategic and potentially financially meaning. They will extract more value on a strategic fact they will work closer with those VC. On the financial thing, even if you return 20x, right, it will don't change the trajectory of those billion dollar company, right? So they don't come here to make so much money. They, on the money side, they try to be break-even across all the funds and all the investments, but the main driver will not be there. The main driver will be based on what kind of strategic value can this can bring to them. So anyway, will be still a small amount. But the thing is, when you look at someone like Temasek, if you are funding your race from Temasek, it's amazing and sure in terms of branding. Maybe not the one putting the biggest amount of money in your fund, but in terms of branding, when you're able to see all the LPs and say Temasek invested in your fund, in terms of due diligence and branding this bring, this is maybe one of the things you can do to, if you're the Singaporean government to support fund in, in Singapore, is the best thing you can maybe do to them. If you are very picky, so don't give to everyone, but if you do it for the right reason, a lot of them can then make their life easier when they need to fundraise because you have watched them early. It's kind of a label if you get Temasek as, a, as an LP in those funds. So Temasek, I've done definitely several of them in Singapore. But what is also interesting is to see the money coming from South Korea, the money coming from Japan, from US, and a little bit from Europe. Where so far, I feel very interesting. I didn't have finished my research on that topic, but I didn't find any public record of Chinese-based corporates or fund of fund or any other kind of people investing in fund. I didn't find yet any record of publicly disclosed that those people have invested in a fund in Southeast Asia. And one of the reasons could be also that it's more difficult to get your money outside of China. But you get a lot of Chinese fund looking at Southeast Asia and doing way more things since this year. And I think we'll see way more things done by those people next year. Well, the ones who have money are the China tech companies, right? And they are already awesome. here. I want to shift the conversation to another category which have a lot of happenings in Southeast Asia this year, which is blockchain. Everybody knows that I always think that 95%, maybe now 99% of the ICO are all junk. There were a lot of things happening. I know that new Ethereum are now based here in Singapore. I know Singapore has also published its first ICO paper. The Monetary Authority of Singapore, which is the government, Central Bank actually published a paper to say what constitutes an ICO. And of course, then you have a lot of scandalous projects, for example, 10X, not having a foothold, and they raise about 100 million through their ICO. So the question for me now is, what's going to happen to the blockchain market, given that this region 
think is probably very friendly to the blockchain market? I mean, other than Japan and Korea. Well, I guess we definitely get a massive hype on blockchain. Also been driven by a very high level of valuation of cryptocurrencies, such as Bitcoin. I think then now we're going back to a more reasonable state of the valuation of cryptocurrencies and a lot of of those blockchain projects. To be honest, this was such a big topic the last 12, 18 months. And it was like so much buzzword that I didn't look too much at it. My strategy was like, let's wait for that to go down, to finish to burn. And then I would just go through the ashes and see what survived. This must be the good project. It was like way too much noise around it. And I think then now we're going back to a stage where in a few months we'll start to see who really are doing things. But the challenge is when you have raised like 80 million, you can take a lot of time to build something because you have like five years or 10 years of burn rate, depending on what is the size of your team. You can also, even if you decide to create your own funds with that money and invest into startup, you can even if buy a startup who did something well, integrate into you and then use their product because maybe you have a bigger branding and more money than them. So I guess we may see some of those blockchain projects going to buy some other companies, having real product, but maybe struggling to... Uh, it's called buy to pivot then. And they have the money for that. We go into the next event, regional focus. I want to shift the conversation a bit out of Singapore first. Let's talk about Malaysia, mm-hmm. Vietnam and Philippines. Where do you see them going? So Malaysia, they have a very specific timing now because for different reasons, Magic, Cradle and MDEC were three of the main commercial organizations to help to support the ecosystem. All of them don't have anymore a CEO. Just resign, leave or unfortunately for the CEO of Cradle die uh, this year. You have like all those kind of things. So maybe it could be a good opportunity for the government to set up that maybe in different way, bring three people that you know they may work well together. It's kind of unique period of, of timing for them. So either it works well or either it doesn't work very well. But this is something like very unique in Malaysia. I think Malaysia also, we don't talk too much about them, but they have like some big company built there. And when you look at some of the biggest exit in Southeast Asia, like iProperty, and you get also some large companies who are being built out of there, even if out of Penang, people don't talk too much. So I feel like Malaysia... Most of the entrepreneurs there don't talk much. At the end, Grab was out of Malaysia, not out of Singapore. Um, So you get a lot of things, but people don't talk much about what happened in Malaysia, very low profile. Then it's more about, you learn about them when they move to another country or when they get acquired or when they punish it, they go for IPO. And it's still also the base of Patrick Grove, where he's building also a lot of business from there or iFlix. So then we'll see also what would be the future of company like iFlix from Malaysia. Uh, Vietnam have been interesting. Also, you got 500 startups, funds who just closed at, at 14 million. They just announced they're also launching an accelerator there with a partner, which is GS Shop. So back again to someone who have been LPs in some funds in the region, plus on top of that, who decide to do more things at early stage with 500 in Vietnam. Vietnam also got a fund at 100 million who been announced earlier this year but it will be apparently a mix between direct investment and potentially like different kind of way to deploy that money so it's maybe not on only 100 million to be invested directly into startups but vietnam have like some great company is also definitely one of the top talent pool for technical talents in the whole southeast asia with indonesia in terms of volume and quality so this is a very unique position also for vietnam i think the change will be Will they be really able to build enough companies and then go outside of Vietnam? We'll see, but still a bit early. But few of them are doing great things. How about Philippines? Philippines, I think as of today, if you ask a lot of people, they will only be able to give you very few names of company. They may give you Caliber because they went to YC and the founder, Paul, is a very charismatic person and very supportive to the ecosystem. They will give you that one. And the second one they may give you will be Revolution Precrafted because they also get a valuation of $1 billion. It's their first unicorn and it's in architecture. 
one of my favorite topics. True. And uh, like on the pre-crafted housing, we'll see on in terms of what would be the numbers. Apparently, they signed a lot of contracts, but uh, they didn't have shipped a lot of them so far. So I think it may take a little bit of time to get a sense about if that valuation is worth the capability they have at shipping the project they have sold. But as selling product, they have been very good, signing contract. We'll see, I guess, on the next 12, 24 months, what will be the results in terms of housing they will be able to, to produce. What happens to the Singapore startup ecosystem and also Indonesia and Thailand? I think Indonesia and Thailand are growing pretty rapidly. Yeah. And Singapore is small, so they need to go out of the immediate market comfort zone. So where do you see these three markets be then? So Thailand is maybe one of the markets where at the same time the government is supportive in terms of doing launching a lot of initiatives. And sometimes maybe doing slightly too much could be, but they're doing a lot of things. They're at least proactive. Then are they doing it in the right way is a different question, but definitely proactive to support the ecosystem. Second, you also get the traditional businesses being involved. So company like CP Group, they're doing the true incubates and they have like different initiatives. They're doing that big complex with a corking space and etc. in Bangkok. So you also get some traditional businesses doing things. And also very interestingly, like CP Group have a lot of tie with China. So when you get Asan Money doing a partnership, is also with Chinese company and then it's back to Alibaba. So they have those close relationship. And then you also get a lot of corporate being involved, local corporate being involved also at the same time. So basically you get a lot of those elements going together and a lot of people were also looking to build startups and also Thailand leverage like Indonesia on the digital nomad. Most of them who don't build scalable businesses, more freelancer. But it's also a pool of talent coming there, visiting, and maybe one out of 100 maybe build a, a scalable business at one point. So it could be also something good for those destinations. So talent is very unique in that sense. Indonesia have definitely started to get... I think people don't see the wave of company coming from outside of Indonesia, meaning that Singapore so far have a lot of unicorns in a way. But I don't see the same pipeline of company between 100 million and 1 billion, below 1 billion in valuation in Singapore compared to what you have in Indonesia. Indonesia, you have way more. If you look at the roughly 50 companies around that funding, around that valuation in the region, most of them are coming out of Indonesia. And then we'll get a lot of news in the next few months, uh, I mean the next year, where Indonesian companies will reach the unicorn status, and they will completely be two, three, potentially four times bigger, maybe by end of next year, compared to Singapore. So then in terms of being big companies, they will get that. And then Singapore, the question is what kind of positioning they can get out of that. I think what is interesting is the government were already for two years looking more at deep tech, try to differentiate and kind of will not be the best one in terms of, of volume. So how can we go to something with a bit more quality, more complex to build? So they're looking at, at that kind of value added. That is what they did with their manufacturing. They did exactly the same thing. They moved from Thomson being one of the biggest employer in Singapore building a manufacturing of TVs. And then now they look at medtech, biotech manufacturing, something with high value added and where Singapore can make sense for those factories in terms of shipping, in terms of tax, in terms of talents, that way it can make sense. So I think they try also a little bit to transform the startup ecosystem, get a little bit more into that space. So it's why SG Innovate is also an investor in Entrepreneur First, bring them here, try to support more deep tech investment on the VC side. I think what is missing across all the region is what I'll say education and is education for a lot of people, education for developers, how to get more developers, I mean more technical talents, better, or people will never cut to start to be able to be, to do coding. You also need more education even if on the VC side, a lot of people are reading their first fund or even if the second fund, and even if you're reading your third one, very few VCs will already have the expertise about how do you exit a startup, how do you exit a full fund. So this is also a new cycle here where you start to get a lot of VCs who are having fun who are six, seven years old, and they will need on the next few years 
to exit those funds to return the money to the LPs. So this also will be a kind of big trend here across all those countries of people who will need to figure out that kind of thing. I still have a few minutes of time. I want to hear your thoughts on corporates in Southeast Asia and how are they doing. And of course, the last part of it, I want to ask you, which companies will be among the next wave of unicorns? Okay, on, on the corporates, we saw a lot of things happening here in the region and a lot of an accelerator is crazy. Like most of the accelerator are corporate accelerator. And just like this year, you got like new things like by Google, Facebook, Oracle, who have launched like end last year, beginning this year. And all of them are looking also to do more things with startups. So this is a lot of corporate are looking to engage, even if very early, which I feel isn't always the best strategy for most of those corporate. So except if you want them to adopt your tools like cloud computing, and then it makes sense sometimes for those kind of engagement to start very early. But for a lot of them, I think a strategy like what Microsoft is doing with what they call the scale-up, looking at later stage companies to work with, I think it makes more sense for most of the other corporate. So this is something we saw a lot. A lot of them are even if working to launch new things earlier next year. So you will see even if at least one or two new corporate accelerators emerging next year in the region. And a lot of them also are potentially looking to be LPs in more funds in a, in a region. So this is definitely not escaping the region. NASPER potentially, I see them maybe coming back a little bit more. Um, they've been there a long time ago. Potentially, they may come back and do more things. Um, there's some rumor of them investing in some startups, which I would not comment, but <laughs> definitely, apparently, they may, they may come back. Just for everybody's note, Nesper is one of the big investors of Tencent. The current investment in Tencent that they own is 137% of their original market cap. So Nesper, what is also very interesting is they invested across a lot of marketplace worldwide. They're also an investor in LetGo. For example, recently we just raised like half a billion. What is very interesting is one of the unique investors who can cut check very little, like so 1 million, but they can go up to 1 billion. So they can do like this wide range of investments. And then it's pretty interesting for a lot of startup working in that space. My last question, who are the next wave of unicorns in Southeast Asia? Oh, I mean, basically you can look at every startup who have raised a significant amount of money and, and mostly in Indonesia. The last one was Tokopedia with 1 billion, right? <laughs> yeah, so also some of them, as soon as you raise at least a billion, you're by definition hopefully a unicorn. But even if before that, what we can just look at is the few names who are already like reaching that level right so the one will run like even if a decacorn like 10 billion will be grab and gojek those one will be the one very high then you will get company like tokopedia c even if lazada if you consider as a business how much they may value and then you may get a traveloka razor bukalapa q10 property guru with raising that amount of it was reaching that amount of money tracks also and then you get some company like carousel zilingo who will reach that that billion i guess uh, soon and then you get like so all those companies together roughly is around 45 billion, 40 to 50 billion, depending on how much we evaluate the valuation is difficult because some of them have done acquired, have been acquired now like Lazada. So it's difficult to know how much you want to value them. Some of them are public traded. So then it's very easy to get a sense. But this is already like around like 50 billion of value have been created only across those one. Then you can look at the next kind of 50 companies who are basically the one who have already raised like, I will say between, I've raised like several hundred of millions. And then you get a, a large bench of them. If you want to play very safe, you should just look at the one who have raised the biggest or the one having already a valuation very 
very close to that. But basically, you, you can get company like iFlex can reach the billion dollar in valuation. You can get company like uh, Rebounds if they don't have it yet, who are very low profile also, but doing a lot of things in a luxury brand. CXA Group could be a one who can reach that kind of valuation potentially. Shopback or Caro also, who can get that kind of valuation. In Indonesia, you can go to Akulaku also, who can get that kind of valuation and get also like top Chinese investors in that kind of companies. You get Kapanglagi, you can get Ovo also in Indonesia. If you stay in Indonesia, you can get to Bibli, Kartuku, or even if, if you consider Kudo as an independent company, who got acquired for around 90 to 100 million by Grab, maybe by end of next year, they can reach almost that valuation depending on how the company is, is growing. In Thailand, you can have companies, even if like Agoda, where people don't talk about it much, but also being acquired could be an interesting one. VQ got acquired by Rakuten, could be a company who could be independently valued around that kind of amount of money. Our property group also could be around that kind of number. So there's a lot of, we mentioned tracks, Patsnap also, we don't talk much about them, but could be also one who can reach that level. So you get a lot of, or even if Bigo, so you get a lot of companies who could be like being closed already, depending on what kind of term sheet that maybe get offered as of today by some potential investors, but some of them also may reach that level next by any fundraising events. But also what is interesting, you also at that stage, or even if before, start to get more and more like PE firm, like KKR, or even if TPG, who may go through also those fronts. So for example, KKR just entered Property Guru, but before TPG was also into it. So you start to see also more and more of those players also entering the ecosystem. I think is also an interesting thing because investors from China like GGV is also looking to do more things in the region. We've got Kiming also, we have done few investment here in the region. So those people will be also more active, I guess, next year. And it will be interesting to see uh, potentially some Chinese investors competing with Southeast Asian investors in some deals. I think it can bring uh, more opportunities for some entrepreneurs. So while we are actually still thinking about trade war between China and US, and we still have Southeast Asia to play. We'll be not on the US side I think US as you mentioned like most of the US company in Southeast Asia have been looking more at organic growth they didn't went too much to acquisition and investments been pretty unique on that side is definitely more China activities in Southeast Asia than US activity on the acquisition and investment side and that's something that we will look forward to so Anand many thanks for coming on the show and talking about what happened this year in Southeast Asia I'm sure there will be things here so in closing can you recommend any book podcast or something that has impact to your work or personal life recently? Oh, so I, I will uh, slightly, I will answer your question in a slightly different way. I think what is definitely impacting my life now is I'm, I'm definitely working on a third beat update of my on my report on Singapore ecosystem. And this is definitely having a big impact on my life because it's taking a lot of my time, but it's helping me definitely to get a better sense that I mentioned, like tracking even if what the LPs in the fund in the region, what the startup, what they have done in the region, what the government are doing. And I'm also building a lot of framework to help people to understand like how an ecosystem work and how you can benchmark ecosystem across each of them so this is where i'm learning a lot these days and having a lot of impact on myself and i'm looking to release that uh earlier next year and you have a date with me in january to talk about that right not january i think it will be more in march <laughs> it'll be more end of march my my date of release so i think i think it will be more uh accurate to look at at march for uh, but we can still meet in january but <laughs> sure. we can do a podcast about it in march for sure how do my audience find you then the best way to reach out would be uh through linkedin and i'll have an email address which is mentioned on my linkedin so this is the best way to contact me so all of you you can google me at bernard Young, or you can Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and also now Spotify. You can also tweet to me or give me some feedback. The most important, please give us a five-star on iTunes because it helps us in discovery. 
and also in giving us a star on Overcast and Pocket Cast, and that would also help us in being discovered as well. Recently, we got a very honorable mention on the Acquired Podcast, which is one of my personal favorite on in their Tencent episode. So we will actually also point you towards looking there as well. So once again, Arnold, many thanks for coming on the show and have a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Thank you, Bernard. You too.